Um, I was actually, I'll be honest with you, I was actually going to start a brand new series this week and had it all scheduled out. Any guys like you're just any planners and you put something on the calendar and you want to start something, well, I'm, I'm usually like that with uh, when it comes to the church and planning out different messages and sermons and all that kind of stuff. Um, and due to uh, me moving here um, and all of the conversations that I have had this week, I really felt it was necessary to preach the sermon. So I, um, we're going to push back our series and we'll start it next week. But I really feel um, through the conversations that I've had with many people in the city and many people that I've had in the church that this is a very prevalent topic that needs to be addressed. And um, it's simply this. It's the fear of man. Um, I think... If we're honest with ourselves, most people strive to live for the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Um, if you look back recently or maybe in your past history, the dumb things that you have done in your life was probably only for the approval of the people sitting next to you. Right? Remember, I remember I was the kid all the time, and my wife hates this when we go on vacations, but somebody was like, dude, you can't jump off that bridge. Oh, really? I can't jump off that bridge? And then they're like, dude, and they keep egging you on, and you do something stupid, and you jump off the bridge only to be, what, approved by the crowd. But I think it goes much deeper than that. It's not as silly as jumping off of a bridge. I think sometimes it's when we're in our jobs, when we're in our workplaces, when we're in our marriages, when we're in our friendships, in our relationships, we end up serving and in, in, in acting and in doing things for the approval of the people around us rather than the approval of Jesus. And ultimately, this is bondage. Um, this is an exhausting way to live when every single time you have to get around a certain group of people, you have to present yourself this certain way because you're longing for their approval. You're longing for that, hey, yes, you did a great job. So this talk this morning is going to be a little bit different. Um, I kind of want to just, I guess, have a casual conversation with you guys this morning. Um, so this is what we're going to do. If you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 12, um, and I'm only going to preach out of uh, one verse this morning, and there's a, a two other verses that I have that will kind of help. But we're going to be in John 12, 42, but before we actually read it, let me set the stage of what's kind of going on in this chapter. Okay, so you have this entire um, city and this entire group of people that has come to hear Jesus preach. And they're all very skeptical. Anybody like your mind sometimes can be your greatest weapon. Like anybody, like you're just quick-witted, you're sharp, and um, you use it to your advantage. Well, Jesus is teaching a bunch of people like this. They're very smart. They're very intellectual. They love knowledge. And all of a sudden, just to kind of blow them all out of the water, he starts doing some unusual things that doesn't make sense in their brain. He starts healing people. He starts performing miracles. He starts, um, he rubs the mud on this guy's eye and he opens his eyes and he begins to see. And so everybody's kind of perplexed. They're like, wait, hold on. This doesn't, this doesn't make sense. Who is this man? And it says, um, before we read in, in verse 42, it says that many people begin to actually believe in Jesus. So they begin to see, okay, this guy is the real deal, he's legit, what we've been doing and when the gods that we've been serving, we need to leave them and we need to continue to follow Jesus. But then I want you to watch what happens. John 12, 42 says, nevertheless, 
many, even of the authorities, believed in him. So talking about Jesus. But for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So here's what's going on. If they went public with their belief, people were going to persecute them. People were going to talk bad about them. If they actually confessed that, hey, what I saw Jesus do is real and I want to surrender and give my life to him, they couldn't do it because of the fact that they favored the approval of man and they feared men and women versus the approval of Jesus. Ultimately, back in the day, good Jews didn't get kicked out of the synagogue, right? If you were a good Jew or if you were a good Christian and you came into church, what's the last thing that you want to do? You don't want to get kicked out of church and look like a fool. And so that's what's going on in their mind, their perception of themselves. How am I going to appear in front of my peers and other people if I make and take this stance? So let's keep reading. But this is what happens, and this is interesting, because it says they had the fear of the Pharisees. Then listen to what the Bible says about these people. John 12, 42 continued. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. For they love, in other words, for they love the approval of man rather than the approval of the Father. So here's what I want to get at to you this morning is this. Are we okay with being affirmed and proved and approved by Jesus alone, or do we need substitutes? Do we need other people to tell us, hey, you're doing a good job? Do you crave that? Do you long for that? Do you go out of your way to get compliments? Are you fishing? Do you say, I mean, I need this person to approve me? See, back in that day, when you read this scripture, I think sometimes when we read it, we go, how, could, how dare they? How dare they um, long for the approval of man versus the approval of God? But I think a lot of times what, what will help us when reading scripture is put yourself in the story. Like, don't we do this all the time? Aren't we the same as these people? We may look at the verse and say, that's shocking. Why would they trade the glory of God for the glory of man? And we do it every single day. We do it every single day. So here's what I want to do. It's going to be on the screen. I want to give you a definition of the fear of man. And it's simply this. When you have a deep concern about what others think of you, there is this controlling desire for human approval and a controlling fear of people's rejection. Do you ever not make decisions based on how people are going to respond to what you have to make? Do you ever not stand up for yourself in certain situations? Or do you ever not confront your wife or your husband because your marriage isn't going how it needs to go and you know the way to fix it, but you don't say anything in fear of being rejected? Do, do you, or have you become this person that is saying, man, I really want to serve and I really want to love Jesus, but you feel crippled by your fear of man? Do you desire to be respected, esteemed, admired, included? Do you have a fear of being overlooked, maybe mistreated or neglected? Do you so badly want people's acceptance and you fear when people reject you? Now here's the truth. It's a legitimate desire to want approval, right? I'm not saying that's a bad thing. The problem is when these natural desires become excessive or controlling. When they become excessive or controlling, when your mind becomes 
begins to become consumed with what people think about you. We become filled with excessive concerns over how we appear before people. And let me explain it to you this way. Does it ever, like, you get ready in the morning and, like, you try on seven different things? Do you ever realize that the only reason that you probably do that is because you're like, who am I going to run in today? I don't want to be looking like a fool at Walmart when I show up in my pajama pants. If you go to Walmart with pajama pants, I know who you are. No, but you, you come in and, and you have this controlling, gripping thing of like, I can't be misrepresented. I have to look right. Everything has to be perfect. The makeup has to be well. I have to show up to my job and I have to appear like I know all the answers. Do you so long for that approval? See, the problem is when we can become more concerned about what people's opinions are about us, this is the fear of man. And ultimately, we start to define ourselves by how people respond to us. And we begin to view ourselves based on how other people view us and not how God views us. And that is dangerous. Because the truth is, it will cripple you from making certain decisions. And it will cripple you in your relationships. No longer are you this individual person that is making decisions based on the approval of God. But you make them based on how other people are going to see you. The most dangerous thing about the fear of man is ultimately people become big and God becomes small. People begin to become elevated above God. The approval of man becomes more important than the approval of God. What people say about you becomes more important than what God says about you. And here's what I've noticed. The promises and decrees of Scripture mean absolutely nothing to like, all, I mean, the Bible is filled with thousands of promises. And all these things of, of Jesus affirming you, and all of that becomes white noise compared to what one person says about you. Because you live for it. You desire it. So, so here's where we're going to kind of switch gears just a little bit. And this is what I want to do. And I want you, as I say these things, to genuinely ask yourself these questions. I want to take a moment to kind of diagnose ourselves. Okay? I want to diagnose to see if we actually have the fear of man. Because I am well aware that there's many people of you sitting in here saying, this, is, this sermon is completely irrelevant to me. I don't fear man. I'm a confident person. I walk it up. I'm my own person. You know, I, I'm, I'm good. Well, let's ask ourselves a few questions. And I'll be honest with you. I got this from uh, Ed Welsh's book called When People Are Big and God is Small. So question number one. Do you need something from others so that you become dependent on them? Now, let, me, let me phrase it this way. Instead of going to God and asking God, hey, God, where should I lead my family right now? Where, where should I go? What should I do? I'm kind of stuck. I don't know what to do. Instead of going to God, you go to people first. I'm not saying going to people is a bad thing, but instead of going to God first, do you go to people? Number two, do you expect a lot from people. Let me, let me put it this way. When my wife and I first got married, we had high expectations for each other. And so high that it was crushing. Like, she wanted me to be like some, you know, husband that got off of work and rode into the front door with a white horse and had flowers and chocolates every single day and a glass of wine on the table. I'm like, babe, it's just not going to happen every day. 
It's just like she had these high expectations, and I was the same way. And it was almost like so high that it was crushing, and I couldn't live up to them. And, and we didn't let each other fail. And the first two years of our marriage was exhausting. Because we couldn't be real. We couldn't really share our true feelings, our deep longings, how we really felt. Instead of actually, like sometimes, it's, uh, like I don't know if you know this, sometimes it's actually good for you to argue. I'm not talking about raising your voice and yelling and, and yelling out profanities. I'm not saying that's good. But sometimes it's good to go in and say, hey, listen, I just don't agree with you. And I think you're wrong. Oh, really? Well, I think you're wrong. That's usually how it goes, right? Do you expect a lot from people? See, what I've learned in marriage is that, yes, I expect things from my wife, but at the same time, there is only a certain level of intimacy that is going to happen in the marriage when my reliability is on God. It has to be placed on God. And when I do that, then I realize, man, my wife is a flawed human being, and she's going to make mistakes, and she can't fulfill everything that I need her to do. And vice versa. Number three, do you crave compliments? Do you crave compliments? Let, let, me, let me put it this way. I was thinking about this one. Do you ever fish for compliments? Uh, let, let me put it this way. Maybe you even say something stupid in order for somebody to say, no, 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 you're really good at that. Like you're fishing for the compliment. Right? You're like, man, dude, I'm just so horrible at that. And you're kind of setting yourself up, right, to look like bad. So, because you're fishing, because you want other people to come in and be like, no, no, you're really good at this. And you want them to build you up. Are you fishing for compliments? Number four, do you need to have people's approval over you? Before you make a decision, before you do anything, do you have to have somebody approve you? Number five, are you ever afraid you might be exposed as an imposter? You know, see, the, the fear of man oftentimes creates a reality for yourself that is not genuine, right? And, and so if you're living underneath that, then, then chances are you're probably not living true to who God has actually made you. And so you work tirelessly, effortlessly, continuing down this path of trying to present this person that you're really not. Number six. Are you over-concerned with how you look, how much you weigh, or how you're dressed? I think that one's pretty self-explanatory. Number seven, do you feel underappreciated? Do you say, man, nobody ever notices the hard work that I do? And I do, I work three jobs, I do this, and I never get a compliment. Number eight, this one hit home for me most, because this is the one that I struggle with personally the most. Do you ever make excuses for your mistakes, justify your bad behavior, or blame shift because you can't handle the thought of failing in front of people? You can't handle the thought of failing in front of people. I am guilty of this one. I hate failing in front of people because I feel like I've got something to prove. Right? Like, I, ever since I was a little kid, and if you would ask my parents that for years they felt the man like, all my brothers had their, like, you know, styles of just going out and doing crazy things. And I was always perceived as the good child until my parents really found out who I was. I was just, I was better with words and I was better at hiding and I was better at keeping secrets than they were. And I knew how to talk to my dad. I got out of more spankings. I got out of more beatings than anybody. 
My dad used to drive my dad crazy because as soon as he would say something, I'm naturally I'm quick-witted, so I can say something back and be like, just, just go, son. <laughs> Get out of here. But the only reason that I did that is because I hated failing in front of people. I, I could not stand the thought of people going, man, you failed at this. It drove me crazy. Number nine, do you compare yourself to others and feel good about yourself when you win and others do you feel good when, when people around you at your job, when they fail and you don't? And when, when somebody else, or do you feel the opposite way when somebody else is succeeding and you're not? Instead of celebrating with them, you cut them down? See, that's what I love about the gospel is we can come in and we can both be on even playing fields and we can fail in front of people and somebody else can be succeeding. And instead of uh, the person that is succeeding, instead of mocking the one that is failing, we stretch out our hand and we say, let me help you. That's the thing that I love about Jesus. It's the thing that I love about the gospel is we're free to be who we are, even in our failures and our mistakes. So those nine questions. So here's the deal. If we wrestle or deal with any of these things, chances are, to some degree, you deal with the fear of man. If I had to bet, by a show of hands, real quick, how many of you with any one of these questions that resonated with you at some point? Okay. Everybody. Everybody. And here's the deal. The fear of man is ultimately bondage. And it's going to be something that for the rest of your life that you have to adamantly fight against because it can be crippling. Ultimately, we end up becoming enslaved to other people's opinions about us. We, we live and die by what other people think, how other people perceive us, what other people say. Ultimately, the jeans that were like one leg was like a dress. You know, I remember showing, I begged my dad forever to get me a pair of jinkos. He's like, son... I can't even tell you what he said because it would not be appropriate. Um, my dad comes from the old school mentality, so there's some things that he said I'm just like, I can't repeat. But there are many of us in this room that are scarred by that idol. And here's the thing. The fear of man is idolatry. It's idolatry. Idolatry is simply this, taking things that are good and putting them above Christ. Taking things that are good and putting them above Christ. Is it a bad thing to want to be approved? No. No, it's when it becomes excessive and when it becomes controlling and when it becomes crippling. It's idolatry. And the root of idolatry is finding your identity in your beloved earthly desire, ultimately the approval of man. Here, here's what I want to spend the rest of the time on this morning. Some of you are still dealing with the guilt over compromise you made in your life simply to win the approval of others. Man, some of you are still wrestling and struggling with the guilt like from 10 years ago. And it was, it was something that you did not want to do. You didn't want to take part of it. You, did, you, had, you wanted nothing to do with it. And the only reason you made the decision is because you wanted to be approved by men or women in that moment. Some of you have been intimate with people that you had no desire to be intimate with. Some of you have given your hearts away prematurely. We've done things that we totally regret, all for the sake of the approval of man. But we've put ourselves in positions that we never wanted to be. 
And the whole reason that we've done it is because we're enslaved and we're in bondage to people's approval. Now, here's the deal. What is it about the human nature that causes us to struggle this way? Why do we wrestle with this? The truth is, we're glory-hungry people. We want greatness. We want significance. We want approval. That's the human heart. We desire glory. And the truth is, we were made for glory. You were made for approval. You were made for acclaim. I mean, look at Adam and Eve. Okay? God makes Adam and Eve, and one of the first things that he does when he puts them in the garden is he approves them. He says, this is very good. What I have just created, you guys are awesome. He approves them. He crowns them with glory. He crowns them with honor. He gives them approval. He gives them acceptance from himself. He takes walks with them. He affirms them. He does all these things. We're made for approval. But then something happens. We, we lost it. Sin entered into the picture and robbed and stripped Adam and Eve of the approval of God. They stood naked and condemned before God. And the truth is, we're born into sin. And now what we're doing is we're trying to get back what we lost. We're trying to take it back in every single waking second of our lives. And some of us, we're trying to get it back any way we can. And the way that we see fit to get it back is by being approved by others. Some of us are trying for beauty. Some of us are trying for wealth. Some of us are trying for fame, power, reputation. You say to yourself, if I could just have all these things, then I would be satisfied. But I think at the heart of all this, it's the fear of man. Ultimately, these are our fig leaves of choice. If you know the story of Adam and Eve, when they took a bite of the fruit, it says that their eyes were opened, and they realized that they were naked, and they were ashamed. We don't know how long they were on the earth before they realized it. This is their eyes were opened, they were naked, they were ashamed, and they grabbed some fig leaves to cover up. And, and I think we do the same thing. Our fig leaf of choice is the approval of man. Like, we have this sagging sense of self-worth. Like, I mean, I don't feel like anything today. I don't feel like I'm good enough. I don't feel like I'm pretty enough. I don't feel enough. And so our fig leaf of choice is just to hide the holes and the gaps in our heart is the approval of man. Because we stand naked and ashamed, and the only way that we can be approved and affirmed is through Jesus. His approval and his affirmations should mean more to us than any person or any human being. Let me give you a personal story. In junior high, I, um, <laughs> despite all of my efforts, I was a horrible athlete, okay? Like, just terrible um, I still am. I, I don't really like sports. I know we live in Louisiana, and it's like this part of our culture where on Sundays after church, you get together, you chips also, and you watch the football game. I've hated it. I'll just be honest with you. Um, I was never good at football. I was never good at sports. And all throughout my life, chances are, for some reason, all of my best friends were always athletes. 
my brothers were extreme, my brother, especially Andrew and Matt and even Nathan, all of them, except for me, thanks God, um, all of them were extremely good athletes. Uh, my, all of them made all-stars. My brother went on and tried to actually, they tried to recruit him in college, play baseball, all kinds of stuff. And so I remember in junior high, I was had this pressure of like, man, all my friends are playing football, all this kind of stuff. So I was like, man, I'll, I'll play football. When in reality, let me give you a picture of my life at the time. I was a deeply introverted kid who loved music, art, and reading a book, which was like weird to everybody else. Like, well, we play football and you do that weird stuff, you know? And so um, I try out for football. And here's the thing about the fear of man, is it'll make you say things and do things that aren't really you. So let me give you a for instance. So try out for the team, and have all my friends, like, and, and so, you know, when you do something as a, as, a, as a young kid, what do you do? You talk it up, right? Like, dude, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm like the best quarterback you've ever seen. Like, I'm telling you, I am phenomenal. Like, you're just talking yourself up. And then what happens? You get on the field and you actually have to play, right? So I remember we're in this, uh, we're actually playing at Como High Stadium in Lafayette. We had this big football game, and I had not played a single game. I'm just sitting on the bench, and I was cool with it. Like, I mean, if I don't have to go out there, and, you know, I don't really want to show people that I'm, I'm terrible. <laughs> so uh, I remember sitting on the bench, and all these people keep getting hurt and hurt and hurt. And so finally my coach is like, McCann, get in. I'm like, uh, like, I don't even know what the positions are. I'm like, well, what am I doing? He's like, you're going to play wide receiver. I'm like, what is that? What do I do? I don't know. And so I remember getting on there and out of nowhere, throw me the ball, catch the ball. And as soon as I realized that I caught this ball, I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> I am about to get pummeled. <laughs> so I remember I ran so fast, like you've never seen me run before. And literally there's this guy who is much larger than I am, and especially when you're a kid, you're like, that is a giant. And uh, he's running, and I'm like, man, I'm, I'm young, I'm fit, I'm in shape, he's a lot heavier than me, and there's no way he's catching me. And somehow, he just kept catching me, and destroys me. Tackles me, and I remember this realization, like the wind is sucked out of my lung, like, what just happened? That day, the next day, I told my dad, I'm like, I quit, I quit, I'm done. And how my dad, if you've grown up in our home, my dad's like, son, you're not good. Uh, you are going to play, and you are going to get destroyed if that's what it takes. You will walk away with a broken leg and a broken arm. You will play. <laughs> but the crazy thing is about this story, why do I share this silly story, is you do stupid things because of the fear of man. You take part of things that really you're not really good at, and you talk it up. You try to present yourself in this light that you're really not. We're just trying to prove to ourselves and everyone around us that we're really worth something, right? Like I wanted to get in that crowd and with that, that the, those friends and just say, man, I can play too, when in reality, I, I couldn't. And I know that's a silly example and illustration, but here's the deal. A lot of us do that in much deeper, difficult things. The most devastating thing that I see is in marriage. Like some of us, we, we can't break out of our shell and be intimate with our spouses in like how we should be because we fear how we're going to look before them. Like I'm going to be a fool saying this words. How is she going to perceive that? Or how is he going to receive that? And it cripples us. 
We're trying to show everyone around us that we matter, that we do have significance. How can we see that Adam and Eve hid their nakedness with fig leaves because they were ashamed? And as I said earlier, I think our fig leaf of choice is the approval of man. We don't feel worth anything, so we hide behind the approval of man. So here's the question that begs to be answered this morning, is how do we get liberated from this fear? Because there's glory, there's honor, there's approval and acceptance that is greater than anything that we can find in other people. And it's the glory that comes from God. Listen, I love this verse. I can't, for, for the life of me, I constantly keep going back to it. But in Ephesians 1, 4, God defines you before you could ever define yourself and before anyone else could ever define you. In Ephesians 1, 4, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he defines us. He approves us. He affirms us. So, here's the deal. This is the gospel. It's going to be up here on the screens. This is simply the gospel. That we are sinners under the condemnation of God, yet God in His grace has clothed Himself in flesh. He stepped into our place, took our sin upon Himself, and took on the wrath of the Father in our place. And get this, our record of sin is canceled, and Christ is condemned in our place. Therefore, we are accepted, and this is ours, that's the gospel. Like you stand naked and ashamed for Jesus. And in all of your unworthiness and all of your sin and all of your shortcomings and all the things that you regret, he approves you and affirms you and welcomes you in to the family if you would just submit and surrender those fears, those insecurities, and those doubts to him. I had a conversation, many conversations this week. I think the hardest thing for people is to understand how simple the gospel is. It's so simple. It's really believing and trusting in Jesus and turning from your old ways and allowing God to make you new. That's it. Listen, what we did last week is awesome, incredible, baptizing people. It doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. Contrary to popular belief, we can do all these things and we can have all these symbols. And man, those things are beautiful. They're great. And we're going to continue to do them. But the gospel is so simple. He just simply wants us to turn from our ways, believe, and trust in him. According to Zephaniah 3.17, the God of the universe looks upon us and he delights in his children. This is the kind of glory that we want. Knowing that the creator of the universe smiles and sings and delights in his own creation and any other glory is foolishness. Now, here's what I want you to get, because my wife and I have been talking about this deeply. I think in any one church, and if you've gone to other churches before, you're going to notice that they lean heavily on um, two different things. You're going to walk in, and one church is going to lean heavily on grace. Okay, like just grace, grace, you're forgiven, you're completely restored, and they're going to lean heavily on grace. And then you go in one church, and they're going to beat the living crud out of you and lean heavily on truth. And you're going to die, you're going to go to hell, and what happens to you when you go out of these doors and you get smashed by a car. And so there's two different tactics, right? 
draw them in by the grace of God, and man, God just loves me right where I'm at, and that's all true. And then you go on the other side and like, oh my gosh, I'm so terrified for my life and my salvation that I need to go out here and repent of all my sins for a thousandth time. But, but here's what you, you have to remember. In all of this, we have to land in the middle. And here's my concern for some of us, is that we would solely bank on the grace of God to the point that we abuse it. To the point that we abuse it. One of my favorite pastors and theologians who was born in uh, the 1920s, his name's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you ever get a chance to read any of his stuff, I would strongly encourage you to do this. But he, had, he coined this term, and it was simply cheap grace. Like, we, we talk about the fear of man, and we talk about being approved by other people, and we say, hey, listen, listen, the approval doesn't come from men, it comes from God, and God's going to graciously, lovingly pull you back in, and he does. But it doesn't mean that you can now live however you want and just claim the grace of God. The grace of God does not mean that you can live, that you don't have to turn from anything, that you can just keep on living exactly how you are, and God just covers you. See, this is the grace of God, is when God genuinely and graciously saves you and pulls you out of that pit that you were once in, you're so captured by His grace that you want to turn from that lifestyle. That you want to turn, that you want to run away, that you want to repent of those sins. So, listen, the grace of God covers us this morning. Man, if you're dealing and you're wrestling with the fear of man and being approved by other people, God graciously comes down and he loves you and he graciously pulls you back into the family. But then you have to realize there's a responsibility that now rests on you. To adamantly fight and to turn from the things that are going to distract you. Bonhoeffer put it like this. Cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Treat grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living incarnate. That's what, real, that's what cheap grace is. Listen, we want to be a people that understand the gracious, loving, free grace of the Father gives to us, but we also want to be a people that realize that there is now responsibility on us to turn the other way and run as fast as you can from sin. Here's the deal. This is what I've learned in my short 29 years of life, is I'm absolutely no match for sin. None. And listen, you can quote all the things you want and say, you know what, I just need to be strong. I just need to keep standing strong. You're not strong comparative to sin. You need Jesus. And the fear of man will continue to grip you unless you make a decision to say, God, I'm going to fight, to turn away. I'm going to get, instead of using people to approve my own self-worth, I'm going to use them to say, hey, call me out. And if you see me struggling, point it out. If you see me fishing for compliments, point it out. That that's how the authenticity of our relationship should be. Specifically within this church. Specifically us desiring and longing to be not just a church, but a family of, and a community of believers that can do and live life together. The key to that is authenticity. And the thing that often um, grips and steals authenticity is the fear of man. 
is us seeking and longing for the approval of others. So this is what I want to encourage you to do this morning. If you're new here, or if you've been coming here for a while, I want to encourage you to do a few things. Number one, get to know people in this room. It's dangerous when you come, especially to a church, and you come in and you're just another number. We never want anybody just to be another number in a seat. We want it to be somebody that sits in the seat, and it's like a spider web. You're connected to all kinds of people. And when you, one day, you get that phone call, and you don't know what to do, and life just serves you, I mean, some rotten things, you have people that you can go to. You have people that you can turn to. That when you feel like, man, I've just run out, like, I feel like I've just run out of steam. I don't know if I can serve and believe in Jesus anymore. You have other people that come alongside you, and they help you, and they pick up your arms, and they push you along the way for a little bit. Don't use people. Let people help you. Let people help you. You know, in, in the very beginning of Genesis, we usually equate it to uh, a marriage sermon or whatever you want. But when Jesus creates Adam, and he says, you know what, after he creates all these things, there's only one time when he says, you know, it's not good. Everything else before that, he said, this is good, this is good, this is good. And he gets to Adam, he's it's not good. It's not done. It's good, but it's not complete. And so what does he do? He adds Eve. And it's not just to say, hey, that, you know, a man needs a woman. And that is part of it. But I think it also goes to show, like, how much we need community. Like, it's not good for you to just be a lung fish. It's not good for you to be by yourself. You cannot do Christianity alone. Because how many of you guys, if you've lived long enough, you know that life can get pretty rocky and bumpy. And it can throw you some curveballs that you weren't expecting, right? We need other people to push us along. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that this morning that, God, through your word, that, God, we can see freedom. That we can break free from the approval of man. God, help us to be affirmed and approved by you that that is the affection and the desire that we would crave, that we would long for. It would be you. God, help us not to abuse your grace. Help us to be people that are so captured by that grace, but at the same time, God, we want to adamantly fight to do what's right, to do what you've called us to do. God, I thank you for who you are and what you're doing. Jesus' name.